Let me ask you now if you would turn your attention to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. That passage is printed in the bulletin. You could also look in your own Bible. Luke chapter 16, beginning verse 19. If you're able, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and this parable of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that as we consider the urgency of these matters, that you would give us that same sense of urgency in our hearts. We ask also, Father, that you would continue to provide for the needs of those in our congregation who are sick, injured, or healing. We think of Juanita Orr. She recovers from her wrist surgery. We think of Alex, son-in-law of Colleen and Wayne, as he recovers in the hospital from COVID. We think of our soldiers, our first responders, our police officers, We think of those who are suffering right now in Afghanistan, for the church there, for those who are in the minority, for women and for children, our teachers and our students, our medical care workers, that you would protect and encourage them. We pray for Ryan White, his grandfather's passing. We pray for his grandmother and that family that you would comfort them. 
We pray that you would comfort Ryan and Lindsay and uh, that you would be with them and their family. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the revelation of your word. We ask that you would bless it to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of years ago when I was in grade school, well, middle school, high school, I was learning German. And I remember one day we were going through German vocabulary, and the teacher said the German word, Achtung. And she asked if anybody in the class knew what the word meant. And I, I knew right away what the word Achtung meant. Uh, I had seen it many times written on little yellow signs or warning signs, all capital letters with an exclamation point at the end. Now, in a day and age of text messaging, where everybody seems every other message to be texting in all capital letters, words written in capitals have kind of lost their urgency, okay? But there used to be a time when you read a word with all capital letters and you realized it meant something very important. It was screaming at you to pay attention. And I had seen these words many times, Achtung, Advertentia, Warning. I had seen it on yellow signs not to slip on the floor. I had seen it in places where I knew that I shouldn't be going, Achtung. And so I knew the answer, and I, I told the, the teacher of the class, I know what it means. It means warning. I think as we look at this parable this morning, that would be a, a fitting title for the parable that Jesus provides to us, Luke chapter 16. Warning. Advertentia, actung, this is important. There's a, a sense of urgency in the parable that Christ delivers. And you see, in the midst of these other parables about wealth and money and the kingdom of God, you may have easily gotten the impression that Jesus is simply telling His people how to live or how to behave or how to treat other people. But in this parable in Luke chapter 16, Jesus reminds us that there is a matter of eternal urgency to which all must give their attention if they're to spend eternity resting with Jesus. That's the matter that is presented in this parable this morning. Now, in the typical parabolic formula that Jesus often uses, this passage is divided between the introduction to the characters, the presentation of the problem or the dilemma, and then finally the exhortation to all who would hear. All who would hear the encouragement and exhortation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the characters in verses 19 through 21, the problem or the dilemma in verses 22 through 26, and then, of course, the exhortation from Jesus to His hearers in verses 27 through 31. So then let's begin with the characters. There are two characters mentioned in this parable, two very opposite characters. It begins in verse 1, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, I want you to know that this rich man in this parable is the richest of all the rich men who are mentioned in any of Jesus' parables, okay? There's a number of things that we read about him and we say, whoa, that's not just the normal rich man. 
That's the very, very rich man. Let me point out a few of those observations. First of all, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. As you know, only kings and queens during this time period would be clothed in purple because the dye to make purple linen or fabric was very hard to come by. And so it was very expensive. This man is clothed in purple and fine linen. It also mentions there, the second thing you might notice is that he feasted sumptuously every day. That's a a great description, isn't it? Think of the words there, the, the vibrant description of what that looks like. He feasted sumptuously every day. And I'll tell you the ESV, the version that we read out of this morning, the ESV I think doesn't quite do justice to the original language Let me tell you what the New American Standard says. The New American Standard says that this man enjoyed himself in excessive splendor every day. So it's not only in his eating habits. It's in the way that he lived, in the way that he dressed, in the way that he carried himself, in the way that he enjoyed uh, his activities. Everything that this man did was in excessive splendor, and I think it's important that we hear, every day. Could you imagine the life of this man? Excessive splendor every day. The third thing worth noting is that it says in verse 20, at his gate was laid a poor man. The word used for gate in the original Greek was not the word for a doorway or even a gateway into a garden. It's the word that means an entrance into a city. Okay? That's a, that's a very big gate. We can think of Buckingham Palace, the entrance to the White House. The, the, the message that we're meant to hear is that this man likely has a wall around his property and his dwellings and a very significant gateway at which the poor man was laid. It's important that we recognize the man that Jesus describes is the richest rich man ever described in the parable, okay? Let's look at the second character. He's mentioned in verse 20, he is that poor man who was laid at the gate, and he is named Lazarus. Let's make a a few important observations about him. First, and this is significant, I do believe, there are in all of Jesus' parables, He never, not once, other than this moment, ever gives a name to any character in any parable ever. Pretty interesting, right? Never, except at this moment. The poor man, he said, was named Lazarus, which comes from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means, and I want to make sure I get this right, which means the one whom God helps. The one whom God helps, okay? And you can already begin to see the irony of this parable. It's just obvious, isn't it, right? How is that the one whom God helps when in the beginning of this parable, he seems to be the only character in the parable who is not getting help from God? That's Lazarus. It also says that he was covered with sores, which we can make the logical assumption would have been because of his malnourishment. He was malnourished. He was underfed. And what happens in the, uh, the physical aspect of the body when the body is underfed and malnourished, and that happens for a long time, 
months and months or years and years on end, the body begins to create these sores, okay? Not getting enough nutrients. Any bump, any bruise, it opens up and it becomes a, a, a terrible wound. That's what's happening with this man. It says also that he longed to eat or to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, okay? That's the, uh, that'd be the, the pre-modern way of saying he wanted to pick from his trash, okay? He wanted to eat from what was ever left over from this rich man. And the other thing I think worth noting is it appears that this man, Lazarus, was even worse off than the dogs of the man's estate, okay? Because the dogs, they came and went freely, and they licked his sores. They're kind of nibbling on him. They're feeding off the man, okay? It appears, as much as we can understand in this parable, that the very, very rich man who was enjoying his excess every day was not the least bit interested in helping poor old Lazarus who laid at the entrance to his gate. Now, those are the two characters in this parable. Let me just first make an observation here. I want you to beware. Jesus never in anything ever has made in any of the words that He said or the parables that He gave has never made a connection, a direct connection between poverty and righteousness or wealth and unrighteousness. So, we have to kind of dispel that idea in our minds. It is not as if we, if we are poor, then we are righteous. Or if we are wealthy, then we are unrighteous. We have to be careful of that. Jesus gives warnings concerning wealth, and we'll talk about those things, but Christ never makes that connection. I'll tell you that's been a, a heresy in the history of the church since the very beginning. It reminds me of these, I might have shared this with you before, but it reminds me of these men in the 400s uh, in the early church. They were called the stylites. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the stylites, but they would build these poles. They'd set these poles in the ground about three feet in width, and they would, they'd be about 15 feet high, and they would climb up on these poles, and they would sit on top of these poles for as long as they humanly could, denying themselves even the basic, uh, the basic comfort of laying down to go to sleep, okay? And so they sit on top of these poles, and some of them would not eat. They would deny themselves of every comfort you could imagine. And the idea was, the less we have in this world, the more we have in heaven. So let us deny ourselves of everything. If you're interested, there's a guy named Simeon the Starlight. He said that he did this for 37 years. I don't know how that's possible, but you could check him out, okay? That is a perversion of the created order. For God has given us good things that we might enjoy. So you might be wondering what's going on in this parable then. Well, what's the issue? Well, let me tell you this. I believe as we read this parable, the issue is very simple. The rich man who's described, beginning in verse 19, the rich man is only that. He's a rich man and nothing else, okay? It doesn't appear that he's a man of God, a follower of God. He doesn't appear to have any compassion. He's not concerned for his community. He doesn't seem interested one bit in the law of God because the law of God had called him to care for those, especially those who were there on his doorstep. He is simply a rich man, and he had trusted in his riches, Okay? That's all he had, and it appears from the passage he found all of his satisfaction, all of his purpose, all of his meaning simply in his riches. I think when verse 22 says that the rich man died, I think if you had gone to the gravestone of the rich man, it would have said, here lies a rich man, nothing else, okay? 
Nothing else can be said of him. Seems to be the issue that we read concerning these characters. And let me tell you, beginning in verse 22, Jesus begins to show us the problem within this parable. Before we get to the problem, let me just say this. 22, verse 22 is important because it represents a pivot point, okay? And let me tell you the phrases that stand out in verse 22. It says there, the poor man died. And just a few short words later, it says, the rich man also died. And I think that's significant because in this parable, Jesus is moving us to a place where we understand the urgency of the moment, recognizing that all of us, all who have been born, will indeed die. And I know that sounds trivial. You're like, of course, I know that, duh. Unless Christ returns again in our lifetimes, we will all die. It's a sobering moment, and yet it's the moment that Christ wants to bring His hearers to recognizing. And I say verse 22 is the pivot point because here's what Jesus is doing in verse 22. He is saying, you will all die, but you likely view your death as the end. Okay? We live and we die, and then it ends. What Jesus is showing in verse 22 is that death is not the end, it's only the moment of pivoting. For this parable doesn't end, does it, with the death of the rich man, the death of the poor man. It simply represents the pivot point in their life. Okay, if this was a musical score, it would be the first act, that death is the interlude, and then the rest of the parable that represents the, the rest of eternity for these men, the rest of the parable is that extended second act that has no end. And Jesus means to communicate the urgency of that moment, the pivot from this life to the next. And so he continues speaking to his audience, and he says this in the parable in verse 23. And in Hades was the man being in torment. He lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Jesus begins to share in this parable some sort of imagery concerning eternity. And I will tell you the truth. This parable is not given for us to understand all the intricacies of heaven and hell, right? So there's a number of questions we can't answer with this parable. So you might say, well, do people in hell see people in heaven? I don't know. That's not why this parable is written, not what Jesus is trying to explain. Could a person in hell actually think that a person in heaven could bring them a drip of water? I don't know, okay? What about this weird description of the angels carrying Lazarus to the side of Abraham? I don't know. It's the only time it's ever mentioned in the Bible, okay? So those things are not made clear. And we could sit around talking about them all day, but that's not the point of the parable. If you've ever listened to Alistair Begg, when he talks about the parables, he's got this little nifty saying, and I find it to be very helpful. He says, with the parables, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, Okay? That's a very simple way of saying what's plain in the parable, that's what's meant to be main. And I'll tell you the one thing that is plain to me in verses 23 and 24, 25. It is plain that Jesus is demonstrating to us that there are two very different places that people will spend eternity. 
Okay? That's plain to me. It's obvious. He describes the place where Lazarus is as a, as a place of comfort. All right? When Abraham says, listen, in your life you got your comforts, now Lazarus is being comforted in this place. Okay? It is a place of comfort and of rest. The most significant this morning, I think, is the description of the other place, the place where the rich man is. See some of the words that are used in the parable? One of the words is the word torment. A torment is a nice way of saying it. It's actually the word that means to torture. And it is, you think, oh, man, torture. Is it, is it really as bad as we could imagine torture? Yes, it is the word for torture that is meant to think of every gruesome vision of torture that you could imagine in your minds. That's the word that's being used to describe the place where the rich man is. It is a place of torture and torment. And then Abraham later uses the word anguish which is equally as disturbing. It's a word that means a mental or physical suffering that cannot be remedied, okay? That's the word for anguish. That's the description of the place where the rich man finds himself in longing for some respite or some resolve. That's why I think the main things are the plain things. Now, Verse 26 continues the thought because verse 26 says this, And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I think it's interesting. Why does Jesus include that line in the parable? I think it's continuing to demonstrate the finality Okay, verse 22, the moment of death, it's the pivot point to eternity, and Jesus is communicating to His hearers the finality, the permanency of that moment of pivot, and when it's done, it is done. The word that's used here for being fixed is the same exact word that's used in Hebrew to describe the resolve of the Almighty God, that He resolved to bless them, or He resolved to condemn them, or He resolved to do something with His people. It's the same word. It communicates and it's unalterable. It cannot be changed. It will not be tweaked. There is no way around it. That's what verse 26 communicates between you and us, between heaven and hell, between eternal comfort and rest and eternal torment. There is no bridging that gap. It has been fixed it is a great expanse that no man can bridge, and it is done. It is finished. And this morning, as you think about this parable, I would say I, I think where Jesus is moving His audience to is the question of, uh, of, okay, what information do we need to be able to make the right decisions that we would find ourselves in eternal comfort, right? And it, it reminds me, uh, I was thinking through this passage, it reminds me of when I was a child, I, I don't know why I have so many stories from when I was a child, maybe I don't know what that means about me, but um, when I was a child, my brother and I used to play board games with our older cousins, and the, the most popular board game was the game of life, okay? You've ever played the game of life? You have? Shake your heads if you have. I want to, okay, if, I, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, this would be bad, so... Uh, we'd play the game of life with our older cousins, and they would always talk us into taking the career path and not the college path, okay? You remember that? You take the career path, it's quick, and you get to your job a lot quicker, all right? And they would convince us, their younger cousins, look at the career path. 
you go there and you're going to get paid right away. This is great. And of course, as the younger cousins, we thought, man, they're giving us advice. This is great, okay? So we would go down the career path and we would get our job card and we would be like um, salesmen or sometimes you get to be the rock star, right? Or the artist. And this is great. And you get your job and you find out you're making 30000 a year. And at, at first, you're like, this is terrific. I'm getting paid early. I'm going to make all the money. I'm on the career path. And then your older cousins who chose the college path, as time went on, they got their career and they got to be doctors and lawyers and they were making 100000 and 80000 a year. And as younger cousins, you're sitting there thinking, wait a second, have I been fooled? Okay. Have they tricked me? And by the end of the game, they always won the game, right? They're making more money. And again and again, it would always remind us, I wish I had that information at the beginning of the game. I wish somebody had told me what I was signing up for on the career path or the college path. I would have chosen the $100,000 job as well, okay? I wanted to win the game. I wish I had the details to make the decision. That is what the rich man is essentially saying to Abraham in the midst of this parable. He says to Abraham, can I... Can I be taken care of? Can't Lazarus come and give me a drop of water? And when Abraham says no, he begins to reason with Abraham, and you read that in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You see what he's saying? Send Lazarus back. Listen, I know I'm here. I know there's a done deal. I know I can't reason my way out of this. But would you send Lazarus back and just warn them? Just warn them. And as you think about, as, as we work through this passage, it's kind of like a, a Christmas carol story, right? Kind of like Jacob Marley, okay? The ghost of Christmas past. You send him back, do little signs and wonders, okay? Reason with my brothers and sisters, and they will be so frightened and so amazed that they will be convinced and they will repent and they will not come to this place of torment. Sounds like what the rich man is suggesting. But look at what Abraham says in verse 28. Now, this is important. This is the exhortation. This is the, the words of divine insight that Jesus is sharing with his audience. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And you may be wondering, what, what does it mean they have Moses and the prophets? Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. He lived his life. He died. He hit that pivot point, And now he is in eternity with Christ. Okay? What does that mean? It's, it's very simple. You see, Jesus often uses this phrase as a synonymous term with the Word of God. Okay, so Jesus will call it the Word of God. He'll call it the Law and the Prophets. He will call it Moses and the Prophets. It is the Word of God that has come through the mouth of the prophets in these last days through His Son, Jesus Christ, through the mouth of Jesus that has been recorded for us. It is this Word, God's revelation to us. Abraham says to the rich man, they have the Word of God. Let them hear the prophets. Let them hear the prophets. And then again, the rich man says in verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. When you read that part of the parable, did it ever cross your mind to think, man, that sounds like it could be a, a pretty promising argument, right? Like, if a dead man came back from the dead 
and said, listen, and not just any dead man, the, the dead man who laid outside your brother's gate for years or however long it was, if he came back and he said, listen, I was dead and now I've come back to you and your brother, the rich man, he's in eternal torment and I am in eternal comfort and you need to be warned. Don't you think they would have been convinced? At least for a second. Don't you think that sounds like a convincing argument? It does to me. It certainly does to me. I think the thing that we always forget about is the, the deadness of the heart, okay? A spiritual deadness of the heart. For as much as human beings experience moments where they may see the beauty of the gospel, or they may be wooed by the nature of the church, or they may even witness things that seem miraculous. The deadness of the heart is indeed spiritual deadness, and it always returns to lull us into a spiritual sleep, to give us spiritual deadness to close our eyes, to usher away the urgency that we once felt. You know, I, I think of this like I think about many of the road trips that I took driving at night, okay? If you've ever driven at night and almost fallen asleep at the wheel, you know what this is like, okay? And I hope I'm not the only one. If I'm the only one, I, I haven't done this in a long time, so it was a bad habit, but if you've ever fallen, uh, almost fallen asleep while you're driving, you know what that feels like. You're driving at night, and your eyelids get heavy, and you've got the window down, you've got your coffee and your soda, and you've got the radio blaring, and you're smacking yourself in the face. You do that, right? Okay, you can laugh because some of you do that. I know that, okay? And your eyelids are getting heavy, and your head is starting to nod off. And when, for that split second, when you close your eyes, okay, and your car hits the rumble strip or it hits the guardrail or you're jolted awake, okay, what happens? You know what happens. The adrenaline pumps through your body and you, you jump awake and your eyes are open and you think you're ready to go and this will not happen again. And, and the moment seems urgent and you are awake and there's no doubt in your mind that you're going to doze off again. That's not going to happen for I am now awake. <laughs> and what always happens? What does it take, like 10 minutes? And your eyelids get heavy again. You start to let your head drop a little bit. You've experienced that. I think some of you have, okay? It's the, it's the spiritual picture of deadness, okay, in, in this parable. It's the spiritual picture of the things in this world and their power to do any change in the heart. And it may wake you up for a moment, but very quickly, the deadness of the heart takes over and you begin to fall asleep again. See, as we look at this parable, the key is very simple. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let me remind you that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. No other way does faith come. And unless the eyes of our hearts are opened by faith, we will not see the righteousness of Christ, nor will we be wooed, nor will it have any permanent or meaningful impact in our hearts apart from faith. And faith comes to the Word of Christ. It has worked 
by the Spirit of God. You see, we can imagine all these amazing, fascinating, super significant things that we believe can change the hearts of men and women, but they're all powerless. Rising from the dead, super spiritual altar calls, finny revivals, miraculous icons, visions, dreams, guilt trips, rules, laws, restrictions, self-denial, the aestheticism like the stylites, doing good to others, political correctness, patriotism. It's all empty and meaningless for the changing of hearts. It cannot bring dead things back to life. And yet we think these things can change hearts, don't we? We often believe they have the power to do it, and yet Abraham says, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's no power in that to change the heart. Honestly, do any of us know how to change a heart? Any of you go to college for heart changing? Or did you minor in it? Anybody read the manual, how to bring a dead heart back to life? Maybe some of you med students did. Not spiritually, though. There's no instruction manual. He took a screw here, a, a dowel rod there, put a little wood glue on it, slap it together, and the, the heart's brought, brought back to life. It's not the way the heart works. None of us knows how to bring a dead heart back to life. So here at Mercy, we will never cease reading and preaching the Word of God. Because this Word has the power to change hearts. It, it is what it says. It has the power to change hearts. This Word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It is a living and active Word. This Word has been given to us in these last days, not only through the prophets, not only through Moses, but through God's only Son, Jesus Christ, very God of very God. This Word is God-breathed. And it is profitable for teaching and rebuke and training our hearts in righteousness that we may be complete. For man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So this morning, I simply want to encourage you with this. The warning of this parable is urgent. It is an urgent warning. Eternity is forever. Eternal torment or eternal glory the answers are clear. They are here in the Word. You have Moses and the prophets. In these last days, you have heard from God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself to you, that you by faith might trust Him. So Abraham's question is our question. Will you hear Him? Will you hear the prophets? Will you hear the very Son of God? And will we come in faith and repentance? Nothing else, nothing else in all of creation or anything that you could imagine, not rising from the dead, nothing miraculous, nothing that seems to be so out of the normal, nothing has the power to change hearts, but the Spirit of God through His Word. Will you hear it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise your name this morning. We thank you that you have given us your son. We thank you that you've revealed yourself here in your word. We ask our Father that you would work faith into our hearts. 
that we would trust Jesus Christ, that we would see Him here in the Word proclaimed to us, and that we would, give, we would be given the gift of faith, that we would be moved in repentance, and that we would glorify You, our Savior and our God. In Your name we pray. Amen.